Hey, everybody. Before we begin today, I just wanted to take a quick moment to thank you for all the support that you've shown me and shown the podcast. When I started this show back in December, I had no idea that it would develop the audience that it has, and it warms my heart to get all the crazy, amazing feedback from you guys who have been enjoying listening. So if you've been enjoying the show, tell a friend, keep listening, and know that uh, I appreciate it uh, very, very much. Uh, If you want to stay on top of the latest podcast episodes, if you want to get information about the latest in nutrition, if you want to know when our new products are coming out, like the t-shirts that we have coming up, then go to richroll.com and subscribe to my newsletter if you haven't done so already. All right. Thank you, guys. Let's get on to the show. Welcome to episode 49 of the Rich Roll Podcast with Tank Sade. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. It's Rich Roll here. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Rich Roll Podcast. What do we do here? Well... I am an ultra-endurance triathlete. I am an author of the number one Amazon best-selling book, Finding Ultra. I'm the host of your show here. I'm a family guy. I'm married. I got four kids, and uh, I love to swim, bike, run, be outside, stay fit on a plant-based diet. Uh, On this show, what I try to do is bring to you some of the most interesting minds and personalities in health wellness, and fitness. A lot of plant-based people, but a lot of different kinds of people too that do all different kinds of interesting things, a lot of whom uh, are people you may not have ever heard of that I'd love to bring on the show so we can learn new things about uh, new pursuits, new ways of living, new, new kinds of sports, all different kinds of stuff. But the kind of consistent theme is uh, paradigm-busting minds and personalities, people who are on the cutting edge of living their life passionately Uh, according to their own rules. Uh, So I've had doctors, I've had nutritionists, I've had world-class athletes, I've had entrepreneurs, all different kinds of people. And uh, today is a a guest who certainly fits the bill of being unique and compelling and different. His name is Tank Sade, and he is an Australian actor, but he's also a freediver. He's the Australian national champion in freediving. And what is freediving? Well, I will admit that I knew very little about this sport. Um, I had seen uh, video footage of free divers in the ocean who dive down as deep as they as they can go to set depth records, and that's certainly one part, uh, one aspect of this sport. But there's a whole other uh, component to this sport that I knew nothing about, which is swimming underwater for distance or just simply holding your breath underwater in a static position uh, in a competition format. Uh, And uh, Tank is a guy who uh, does his competitions in the pool. He's the Australian national record holder for swimming underwater with a fin, a monofin, which is like a mermaid tail. And we talk all about that in the episode. But he can swim 218 meters underwater without breathing. He can also hold his breath in a static position uh, in the pool for uh, upwards of seven minutes. So it's certainly a unique talent uh, and a certain kind of athleticism that's very different from the endurance athlete world or the strength world. It's something that requires a tremendous amount of mental focus uh, and uh, a discipline in which uh, meditation, calming your body, 
using your mind to control the pace of your metabolism becomes paramount to success. So it's less, of, less about strength and kind of uh, training in the traditional context that we think about and more about how to use your mind to propel your body beyond what you think is capable. And it's a fascinating uh, new world uh, that we get to uh, explore and discover today. So I can't wait to share with you this interview uh, with a very, very uh, compelling and fascinating guy. Uh, before we get into it today, uh, a couple little notes. I'm going to be in Tucson on September 21st as part of the Healthy You Network. Tucson, come out and see me speak. Come on. It's going to be me. It's going to be Dr. Michael Greger, who's been on the show before. We love him. Colleen Patrick Goudreau, who's the compassionate cook. She's going to be there as well. So if you want to learn more, go to healthyunetwork.com. Uh, and if you're in Tucson, um, I think they have uh, billboards up around town for the event, which is pretty funny. So anyway, check it out. Hope to meet you and see you there. Uh, also, I'm going to be in Washington, D.C., my hometown, coming up the following weekend on September 28th as part of the DC VegFest. If you want to learn more about that, go to dcvegfest.com. Um, I'm speaking on Saturday afternoon, I believe. So that should be a good time. And I'm looking forward to get back, getting back to DC, hanging out with my parents, maybe seeing a couple old friends. So good times, right? What else? Uh, my Mind Body Green course. I have a whole uh, course on plant-based nutrition at mindbodygreen.com. It's on the homepage. You can find it there. It's three and a half hours of video content broken up into five to 10 minute little chunks, each addressing a specific topic that is uh, relevant to switching over to a plant-powered lifestyle. It's been great. The feedback's been amazing. People are really enjoying it. And there's an online community there where you can raise your concerns, ask your questions, and Julie and I jump in, we answer them, the community gets in there and supports each other, and uh, it's been really cool to see that blossom. People are really enjoying it, and uh, I'm really proud of it. The production value is really high, and I think we covered all the bases. Uh, so whether you're brand new to eating a plant-based diet, you're just plant curious, you wanna learn more, it's a great place to start, uh, but if you've been eating uh, plant-based for a long time, maybe run into some obstacles or you have questions about what's the best way to you know, eat this way when I'm traveling or what do I eat before my workout or after my workout or what are the smoothies that you like or what are some of the superfoods you like and you know, why is it that you think this is such a good way of eating and living? All those things are addressed in the course, so uh, check it out. Um, what else? Amazon, the Amazon banner ad. Uh, thank you guys who have been using the Amazon banner ad to support the show. It's a great way to do so, and it doesn't cost you anything. So at richroll.com on the blog page, on the podcast page, you will see a little Amazon banner. It might be a little bit hard to find. We're working on a website redesign to make it a little bit easier. But if you're going to buy something on Amazon, just go there, click that uh, little banner ad first. It takes you to Amazon, get what you're going to get. And uh, it doesn't cost you one cent extra, but Amazon throws us a little money and that helps us pick up some new equipment and keep the bandwidth flowing, pay for the expenses of the podcast. I'm actually talking into a brand new mic, into a brand new data recorder. And that's because you guys have been using the Amazon banner ad, which has allowed us to get this new equipment, raise the production value, 
keep the ship going. So thank you for that. I've gotten a lot of emails from people who say, well, I live in the United Kingdom. I live in Europe. I live here. I live there. I don't live in the United States and I want to use the Amazon banner ad, but it's for US only. We're aware of that. We're uh, in the middle of, uh, like I said, doing a little bit of a website redesign and uh, we're going to configure everything. So no matter where you live, you can use that Amazon banner ad uh, and, uh, and support the show. So thanks for raising that issue. We are on top of it. Um, you can also donate to the show. There's a donate button. So you can, if you're feeling so inclined, you can throw us a few bucks on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, on a one-time basis. It's up to you how much. And uh, thank you so much for the people that have been doing that. That uh, is really amazing. I mean, the show will always be free no matter what. Uh, and the fact that people would reach into their pocketbooks and, and throw us a little bit of money to keep us going because they're supporting what we're doing, that's amazing, right? And that when I, when I get that, when I see that, I realize that uh, this really is a movement. You know, this is people are looking for new ways of living. They're tired of the lies. They're tires, tired of the all the sort of misconceptions and, and all of the kind of advertising messages that they're bombarded with that are confusing about diet and nutrition and lifestyle. And I'm just trying to bring things straight to you guys, let you guys draw your own inferences about the information that I'm bringing to you. Take what works for you, discard the rest. But my only goal is that all of what I'm bringing to you is going to help you unlock and unleash your best, most authentic self. Because to me, health starts with what you put in your mouth and how you move your body, of course. But that's just the beginning. Uh, that takes you on a journey that allows you to expand your life exponentially. What are you going to do with all this new energy? What are you going to do with this new body, this new good feeling that you have from treating your body right? You know, how you exert yourself and where you focus that energy is really important. Um, and I think in order to do that right, you got to get the best information so that you can get in touch with yourself, find out what makes you tick and start expressing more of that. We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. Momentous products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentous's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentous for yourself by going to livemomentous.com slash richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S dot com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by On. 
I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm going to tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code richroll for 15% off your first purchase. So that's it. Let's get on to the show. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Tank Save. Ray Rock. Yes, sir. I am indeed. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, thanks for having me. So uh, our mutual friend, Osher. How do you know Osher? 
Uh, I know him from the Aussie contingency out here in LA. The Aussie contingent is pretty tight out here, isn't it? It is. I think um, I think it's always good to be around fellow Aussies. We have a, a certain sense of humor. It's uh-huh. perhaps a little little ruder, a little bit more crass. So, I have a joke. Uh, I've done, I've been I started this podcast in December, and I've got I think this is the forty ninth, fiftieth episode or something like wow. that. Wow. And I literally, it seems like every other person I've interviewed is either from New Zealand or Australia. <laughs> like, That's funny. You know? So uh, you're continuing the trend, man. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, honored to be a part of it. Yeah, man. Thanks. And it's, it's, it's cool to be back in, in my old neighborhood. I used to live, like I told you before we were recording, I lived at, on Marine and Fourth right around the corner here. So I love this neighborhood. Yeah, Santa Monica is great. Um, I was quite fortunate to find this place when I first got here. So yeah. Uh, being an Aussie, you like to be right close to the beach, so it's great. Yeah, how long have you been here? I've been here almost eight years now. Oh, wow, nice, man. And uh, and what's going on right now with the acting? Are you working right now or auditioning or what's going on? Uh, yeah, actually, I just auditioned today for a, um, a pilot that's being shot in Costa Rica with John Malkovich. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Malkovich, is, he's going to do TV. He's doing TV. Wow. He's, um, it's from the creators of, um, God, what's that show on HBO? Which one? The big one. The big... Boardwalk Empire? No, 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 no. um, Thorns, Crown. Oh, Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones, that's it. Um, Yeah, and he's playing Blackbeard. And then I'm doing a movie uh, at the end of this month out in Vegas for 22 days. Oh, nice. I'm not sure I can handle Vegas for 22 days, but I'll get a shot. That's a long time, man. (laughs) Yeah. You know? I don't know. I think that would not be healthy for me. Yeah, yeah. Cool. And do you know know Dan McPherson? Uh, I have. I've actually met him a couple of times down in Venice uh-huh. um, on Abbot Kinney. He seems like a really nice guy. Yeah, he's cool. I think he just went back to New- to Australia. I'm not oh, sure. did he? But uh, anyway, yeah, the tight uh, Aussie contingent of yeah actors slash athletes. Yeah, we have um we have a mutual friend, uh, Mark Stabina, who played um, international rugby. So uh-huh. keeping that that athletic kind of circle going. Nice man. I like that. I like the. I like. I love. I'm obsessed with creative people and artists. And I love the intersection of sport and artistry. And I think that, you know, your sport is, it's so unique and it's so different. And I, I think it lends itself to that kind of different kind of approach that we're going to get into, particularly like the mental approach to it, which I think is probably really unique and and extraordinary in your sport um, compared to others, you know, in, in terms of performance. I mean, I think that it would seem like the mental aspect of what you do really takes paramount importance. Whereas with other athletes, it's like, yeah, 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 I know I need to visualize or I should do this or I should do that, but it kind of gets second shrift, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I mean, I would go so far as saying that that probably 60 to 70% of um, the performance in this sport is mental. Mm-hmm. And the difference between a good day and a really, really, really bad day is purely mental. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the discrepancy, you know, you could you could lose two-thirds of your performance if your head's not right. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't really think, I can't really think of many other sports that be like that, probably golf. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I would see it, it's similar to that. Gol- yeah. It would be like playing golf but holding your breath. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Playing um, golf in a tremendous amount of pain. I'm excited to talk to you about this because I, I know very, very little <clears throat> about this sport. Um, and it was fascinating to kind of watch some of the videos and some of the stuff that, that you sent over to me to take a look at beforehand. Um, and although I know you know close to nothing about, about free diving, I do know quite a bit about monofin swimming. I've had some experience with that. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, I went to, this is a long time ago. I, mean, I have a background as a swimmer. I was a swimmer in college. And, and uh, year, you know, some years after I retired, there was a, a little movement in the United States to put together a fin swimming team. Right. And it was started by the guy who founded Finice. Okay. Um, and this was before Finice was Finice. It was like literally out of his garage. He was wow. started this company and he had been traveling around Europe and was a swimmer, you know, and he had been a collegiate swimmer. Um, John Mix is his name. And uh, and he stumbled upon a fin swimming uh, meet somewhere in like Eastern Europe. I don't know where it was or I don't know where he was, but it could have been in Russia. It could have been anywhere. And he couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe how fast these guys were swimming. And he couldn't believe that there was even a sport. It's like literally competitive swimming, except you have a monofin on, you know? Yeah, a girlfriend of mine in Australia, she's Italian. She's she's currently ranked third in the world. Oh, really? So okay. it's, it's huge yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in Europe. It's weird because from my understanding, yeah, in Europe, Russia, China, Japan, uh, Eastern Bloc countries, when you're very young, they sort of identify whether you're going to be more proficient in regular swimming or in fin swimming and they divide you accordingly and they develop these swimmers that are very specific to the underwater fin swimming discipline. And, uh, I had the opportunity to go to, um, the world championships in Buda in outside of Budapest. It was in Dunia Javaros. Um, and we had a team, it was a bunch of former college swimmers, but we had like, uh, Pablo Morales was on the team and Jenny Thompson, like both um, Olympic medalists, Olympic wow. gold medalists. And uh, we just went and got our asses kicked. <laughs> I mean, like we didn't know what we were doing. We were there right. to have fun, but we did like train with the fin and we tried yeah. to learn like, how do you do this? And yeah. it's a very, very different discipline swimming underwater with a fin. And, you, you know, we had the the center mount snorkel. Right. We never did the the apnea. Well, they have the apnea, the 50, right. 50 meters underwater. Yeah. And then they have the ones with the, the um, breathing apparatus where you hold the the um, the tube, you know, the um, what do you, the oxygen tank in right. front of you, right. and you okay. swim like fifteen hundred meters underwater without breaking the surface. Wow! So it was, it was crazy, but I just remember being at this meet and being amazed at how good some of these swimmers were, who I'd never heard of. And when they, for example, when they do the fifty meters, they dive in off the blocks like a regular swim meet with the fin on, and then there's just this massive like tidal wave looks like yeah. a little tsunami that goes yeah. down the pool and just drenches all the officials at the far end and these guys are doing i don't know the times offhand but it was some ridiculous number like 11 seconds yeah. or something yeah. like that to yeah. go 50 meters underwater yeah they're quick so so it's cool and uh, uh you, you know that we went and we did that meet and uh, it was a good time, but it never, obviously it never took off in the US. No one's ever really heard of it. But is that, so I guess that's a, in Australia, there are people that do that though. Yeah, there are people who fin swim in Australia. Um, and anyone who comes from a fin swimming background has a big advantage when it comes mm -hmm. to dynamic apnea. Um, the current world record holder, uh, Alexei, and his mother, Natalia, both came from fin swimming backgrounds. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Are they from Russia? Yeah, they are. I think I, I think that's one of the... How old is that guy now? Uh, Alexei's young. He's probably 30. I, think, oh, I don't uh, even know if he's 30. Different his, guy. His mum is in her 50s. Uh-huh. Interesting. I mean, I remember I met this one guy who was a Russian champion and, you know, he could do... I don't know if you've seen those videos where they're they're like underwater or in the ocean. You swim right. up from like ten meters down and you break the surface with your entire body. Right. You know, yeah. Yeah. Breach. Yeah, yeah. Like that. That's you phenomenal. Know, which you have to be. It looks easy, but you have to no. be incredibly strong to do that. Very very strong. 
Um, and I thought his name was Alexi, but I, I could be wrong. Anyway, it's probably a different guy. But anyway, it's it's a fascinating little weird kind of subculture sport that yeah. you know people in America have no exposure to whatsoever. And then you go to these foreign countries, and it's like it's all about that. You yeah, know? yeah, crazy. absolutely. And then you have the ocean fin swimming, which right. is you know like twenty kilometer races. Oh, I didn't know about that. Yeah, yeah, front snorkel, open water, twenty k's. Really, what, probably about fifteen miles. Would you say? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's interesting. And the discipline is very, um, I mean, you realize when you're training with this fin, how important um, your hydrodynamics are. You have to learn how to be incredibly streamlined underwater, which you have a great streamline, by the way. Oh, thank you. I'm impressed with your streamlining. (laughs) It's actually gotten better since then. And people think that you're kicking and you're using your leg muscles, but it's really not that at all. It's a very kind of, subtle undulation where you're you're pressing down with your chest almost and it's a, it's very much a core exercise more than anything else. Yeah, I'd probably say it's probably 70-80% from your core. Mm-hmm. You know, like from your torso mm-hmm. and um I mean, you'd get lactic incredibly quickly if you just use your knees, uh, yeah. use your legs rather. Right. I mean, and those muscles are so big and they, they're, they're actually not that efficient at propelling you forward. No, absolutely not. And you also have problems with hydrodynamics when you start bending at the knees because mm-hmm. you're just hitting a, a big front of water. So right. you want to keep that as straight as possible. Right. I mean, when you watch a dolphin swim, there isn't that much motion. You exactly. know, It's a very, very tiny, subtle motion, but incredible forward propulsion the I way they move. I guess that's why they call it a dolphin kick. Yeah, they yeah. did. That's right. And when I was, I, I swam uh, in college in the, it was the late 80s. And that was the very beginning of experimentation with the underwater dolphin kick. Um, and it was the first time where people were starting to realize that they could actually go faster if they stayed underwater. Wow. With people with really solid, proficient underwater dolphining. And uh, and the rules allowed you, there was no, there was no provision in, in, international swimming rules that said you had to break the surface at any particular time. So people were really pushing the envelope and especially the backstrokers. So there was a whole contingent of backstrokers and this is like around 1988 who got incredibly good at swimming underwater. And uh, at the Seoul Olympics, most of the final field in the 100 backstroke was underwater the entire time. Wow. It was David Burkhoff, a teammate of mine, Sean Murphy, a bunch of guys who, who uh, were just incredibly, incredibly fast underwater and some of the butterflyers too. Um, and then they ultimately ended up changing the rules. Right. You had to break the surface at 15 meters. You 15. can't stay underwater because the world records were like dropping like crazy and it was becoming a completely different sport. I'd really like to see that actually. Yeah, I'm sure there's videos of that yeah. on, t- on YouTube. But that was at the Seoul Olympics or prior? Seoul Olympics, yeah. Right. It was where it really kind of like was on the world stage. <clears throat> there was a guy named David Burkhoff who... Uh, I can't remember whether he had the world record in the 100 backstroke. He definitely had the American record at one point. And he was really the first one to just really take it to the hilt. And he he was a, a student at Harvard at the time, amazingly talented swimmer. And he would go further and faster than anybody. It was, it was crazy to watch. I know there's this video floating around uh, recently. A, a college swimmer did the 50-meter backstroke and he did the entire thing underwater. Uh-huh. And he, he got DQ'd, but, it, you know. He just wanted to, <laughs> wanted to see how fast he could go. Yeah, I think it was like 20 seconds or something. Yeah, I, I'm not surprised. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm not. yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean, that's why they changed the rule. So for people that don't know, like 20 seconds for, was it 50 meters or yards? Yeah, 50, 50 meters. 50 meters, that's yeah. really fast. Yeah, I think it was, yeah. I think it was low 20s, maybe, maybe a right. little bit, a couple seconds quicker. Right, 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 right. So yeah, so it's interesting. And, and uh, 
And, and yet, you know, what you do is, is very different. It's, a, it's not about going, seeing how fast you can go. It's about, it's all about conservation. So um, why don't you, I want to get into the story about how this all <laughs> started for you. I know you've told it a million times, but you're gonna have to tell it. And, uh, but explain to people kind of what this discipline is. Um, or just give a, give a primer on, on free diving in general and the different kind of aspects of it. Cause there's, I think when people think of free diving, they think of people that dive straight down in the ocean Yeah, yeah and, well, and how that's different from the pool competitions that you do. Right. Well, so there's free diving is basically broken up into two areas. There's depth, which is always in the ocean and then there's pool. Um, and so in depth you have uh, constant weight, which is swimming down with a monofin as far as you can go. And then you have um, constant weight, no fins, which is the same thing, but without fins. And then you constant have- Constant weight means, what does that mean? Constant weight means that whatever weight you take down, you have to bring back up. Mm-hmm. So that becomes the challenge of, well, if I'm going to wear any lead, how much is it going to be? And usually most divers wear very minimal lead because what happens is that depth you compress and your lungs compress basically to the size of a grapefruit. So mm-hmm. while you're buoyant on the surface, you're incredibly negative at depth. So at depth, you've then got to lug that weight back up. The idea behind bringing lead with you is to help you submerge more quickly. Exactly, because what happens is in the first 20-odd meters, you're, you're quite buoyant and you really have to fight against that buoyancy to get down. And then when you get to about 30 meters plus, you can actually go into a sink phase where you can just stop swimming altogether and you'll just drop hmm. and a meter a meter, you know, probably every second and a half. So it's it's how much energy you're going to expend in that first 30 meters to exactly. get to that point, right? Exactly, yeah. So the the way most people go about now is they wear very minimal lead, probably as much to negate the buoyancy of the wetsuit. Mm-hmm. Um, and the bigger the lungs, the more oxygen you pack, the more buoyant you're going to be at the surface. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so the, there are a couple of disciplines in depth. There's constant weight with fin, without fin. Um, then there's free immersion, where you pull yourself down the line, mm. um, and then there's variable weight where you you go down on a sled, and then you have to free swim back up. Um, and they're the four main disciplines in depth. And then when you go to pull, you then again have the the dynamic, what's called dynamic apnea, and that's where you can wear fins or a monofin. And then you have uh, dynamic no fins, mm-hmm. which is as it, as it sounds, it's it's basically like a modified breaststroke. Mm-hmm. And then you have a static breath hold, which is you just you just sit there underwater and you hold your breath as long as you can. <laughs> just like um, you're eight years old and exactly. you're at the pool with your friends, right? Exactly. Uh-huh. Um, except and and that static discipline is is the most challenging mentally because you have no no distractions, mm-hmm. you know, there's no swimming, there's no worrying about technique, there's no focusing on turns or anything like that. And can you put like a lead weight on your on your lap so you just sit at the bottom You actually hold you down? You actually just float on the surface. Oh, uh, okay. Um, face, face down. down. Face uh-huh. down, yeah. Um, so yeah, no lead required <laughs> in static methods. <laughs> if you're floating face down, how do they know yeah. when you black out? That's a that's a good point you raised. What happens is is you'll, you'll have a surface coach who will be in the water with you and, and while you're face down, the, I mean, their the first their first um, thing they got to do is they got to make sure you don't float away. So, mm-hmm. so they just basically hold you there. They they use their hands very very delicately to the point where you don't even know that they're touching you. Um, and they keep you within close proximity of the wall because if you have to come up quickly, you can grab onto something. Mm-hmm. We can talk about that a little bit more later. Um, and then what they do is they they will talk you through 
your performance. And some people like a lot of chatter. Um, when I'm coaching, I, I tend to chat a lot to the person to keep them distracted. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll remind them to lax, relax certain muscles, you know, relax your shoulders and your jaw and everything's okay and this is the tough bit so let's just work through this. And then um, at a certain point, depending on the ability of the athlete or their personal preferences, you'll ask them for a signal. So um, for me, for example, I, I get my first signal at six minutes. So at six minutes, most people probably start earlier. So say, for mm-hmm. example, two and a half minutes, the coach will say signal. And then what you'll do is you'll just move your finger um, and then that, that'll let them know that you're still conscious. And are they telling you how much time or are you looking at a clock or something? That's, that's up to you. Um, I don't like to know. So I don't get my first. I, I only know when I'm at six minutes that, okay, I'm at six minutes now. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of guys will probably start getting calls at two, three minutes. So, you know, it'd be like three minutes signal, 3.30, 4, 4.30, 5. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I get to six, I want them quite regularly. Like I, I, I'll get them every 15 seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, that's, the, that's where you're riding that line of making sure you come up conscious um, versus blacking out. If you do black out, then it's an automatic disqualification and you get zero points. Right, because I would imagine if they didn't have that rule, then everyone would just go to blackout exactly. on purpose, right? Exactly. <laughs> so it's a, it's a safety measure to keep, you know. And then when you come up, it's not as simple as just coming up. There's there's very strict safety protocol that you have to adhere to. Right. And if you don't, you get disqualified. And that is you have 15 seconds um, once your airway breaks the surface to remove all facial equipment. So that could be either a mask or goggles and a nose clip. Do you have to do that yourself yep. unaided? No one can touch you. If, mm-hmm. if anyone touches you, you're immediately disqualified. I got it. Um, so you have to remove your facial equipment. Then you have to make the okay signal. And then- And the facial equipment is just- uh, Goggles. Goggles or a mat and a nose yeah, plug? exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, make the okay signal and then you have to say, I'm okay. The only other acceptable response is I am okay. Mm-hmm. Um, if you say anything out of that, if you do that out of order, if you leave your nose clip on, um, if you take longer than 15 seconds, you're immediately disqualified. Interesting. So at the end of a seven-minute breath hold or a 200 and what meter dive, you're really skirting on the edge of you know how conscious you are. Mm-hmm. And so you have to make a conscious decision that your time is up because you have to allot for the energy it's going to take for you to go through that 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 sort of checklist of things you have to do. Exactly. If you're too close to the edge, you're not going to make it through that without blacking out, right? Yeah, and you'll see, and, and a lot of people just don't have the mental capacity at that point. And, and they're not blacking out, but they might rush it, they might forget their nose clip on, um, they could do a whole number of things, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it can be challenging for foreigners actually because I have to say it in English. And so sometimes I'll come and they'll say, Oh, really? No matter where you are, it has to be say, in English? I'm good, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's a DQ. Um, so, yeah, it's about finding that point where, you know, it's one of those rare sports where you, you want to take it to 99% because 101% is, you know, mm-hmm. blacking out or getting disqualified. Right. Interesting. Yeah, it's like the only sport where you're not trying to go 100%. Exactly. And that that is. Uh, that is in part strategy and it's in part mental capacity. Mm-hmm. And just to to put it into perspective, so your your longest, what's it called again? When you just hold your, it's dynamic. Static, static st- is static. Just okay. a breath hold. Um, my personal best is uh, seven oh five. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't compete in that discipline, so right. And um, what what would be what's the world record for that? Um, the world record is ten minutes fifty five. Wow. And that was that was a few years ago. 
um, by Stefan Misfood. Um, Who's where, where is he's French? So oh, French yeah. guy, uh-huh. but just at the World Championships in Serbia, um, the the top three places hit nine minutes or nine minutes or just under. Was nine, I think nine mm-hmm. eight fifty seven eight fifty or something. Right. So <clears> that gives you a comparison of really where that one guy was compared to everyone else. But mm-hmm. anything I would say a seven minute breath hold is respectable, an eight minute breath hold is really in the top echelon. And then anything above eight and, a, eight and a half is exceptional. Mm-hmm. And how much, we're going to get into the particulars of it, but how much of it do you think is genetic predisposition? Somebody just is naturally gifted with tremendous lung capacity or something like that. And how much of it can be impacted by training? I would say, I would say probably half and half. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some people just have incredibly large lungs, uh, but I'm not exactly sure, but probably the average capacity would be six liters for an adult male. And you have free divers out there who have eight, eight and a half liter lungs. Mm-hmm. So you have that. And then there's a, there's a, a thing called packing, which free divers do at, at the elite level. And that's where you physically use your tongue to piston more air into your mouth once you've um, taken in a maximum breath. Uh-huh. So what, what that's like is that's essentially, um, It'd be like blowing more air into a balloon, so that you're expanding your lungs beyond their physical limits. Oh, from from air that might be higher up in your your sort of up in your mouth or something, or how? What do you mean? Oh, you mean in training, learning how to do that? Yeah. So what 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 we do is we take a full breath of air, and then we, if you can imagine, use our tongue to push air. So we open our mouth and use our tongue to push air down our throat, and then block off our throat. Uh-huh. And then we'll take another breath, push, you know, it's like Oh, I see. Open, so you're, you're creating like a high pressure chamber in your lungs. Exactly. And wow, that's amazing. The top guys in the world would probably pack th- between two and four liters. Wow. Um, that, and that's, you know, there are a handful of guys who can uh-huh. do that. So they could take their lungs from, you know, eight liters to 11 liters. That's amazing. Um, so which is almost double the capacity of, a you know, the average person. Right. And, and when you're in the midst of the event... Are you holding it the whole time or are you slowly releasing? No, you hold it. You hold it you the hold entire it. time. Uh-huh. And, that, and that predominantly has to do with carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. Um, but then um, the constant uh, weight no fins world record holder, William Trubridge, who's a Kiwi, he has um, very average size lungs. I, th- I think his lungs are around six liters. But he has phenomenal te- technique and he has a, a fantastic mental capacity. So, mm-hmm. you know, yes, it's a, it's a great advantage but nothing beats hard work and training and, um, you know, fixing your mental capacity and, and pain tolerance as well. Yeah. I mean, I think on the, on the sort of, uh, mental capacity aspect of it, you know, you read these stories. I I love reading about sort of the Eastern mystics and you always read these stories about these yogis who learn how to control their metabolism through just, you know, like super intense meditation practice and experience where they literally can lower their heart rate, lower their blood pressure, and, you know, basically dial down their metabolic rate to almost nothing. Like I remember I talked about this in my book, but there was a guy, there was a TV show in the, in, in America in the 1970s called That's Incredible. And I remember watching it as a kid and there was a guy called the Yogi Kudu who was like this, you know, celebrity yogi dude or whatever. And he folded himself up into like a lucite box that was like tiny, like, you know, they showed him, they showed him like furl himself into this tiny little box and they put it at the bottom of the pool. 
and they put a weight on it and he was down there for like, I don't know how long it was, but it was a really long time. And they, they were like measuring his heart rate and all that kind of stuff. And literally he was like in this, like close to dead state where he right. wasn't using any oxygen, yeah. you know? So I would imagine like the competitive edge really comes in with your ability to like tap into that aspect of it, which is, you know, that I would imagine requires years and years and years of learning how to use your consciousness or your mind to control your biological processes in your body. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's something we work on a lot with meditation and, and you know, most free dives do, do a lot of yoga mm-hmm. as well. And, and there's also something called the mammalian dive reflex. And that's this thing that when you submerse yourself in water and, and a lot of it's about your eyelids touching the water, but, or just your face in general, especially if the water is a bit colder, um, after a short period of time, your metabolic rate diminishes. It slows down and your heart rate drops. And that'll happen to anyone. If just naturally. Yeah, just naturally. I mean, if, huh. if we measured, if we got you on the side of the pool and um, and we got you to do a breath hold or if we just had you sitting there and we measured your heart rate and then if we put you face down in the water with nothing on your face and you did the same thing, you'll find your heart rate drops after a couple of minutes. That's What is, what is that attributable to? Just some sort of, you know, Mammals. Darwinian thing that yeah, evolved exactly. over time? You know, you know, we came out of the ocean and right. so we still have that. You know, and that's the same thing that seals and whales. That's like and fascinating. All that stuff. Yeah, I mean, in a in a breath hold, there are some athletes whose, you know, resting heart rate would be about sixty, but they'll get four minutes into a breath hold and they'll find it down to about fifteen. Wow, fifteen. Yeah, fifteen twenty. Yeah, fifteen. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. All right. So let's get to your your uh, discipline, which is uh, what is it? Dynamic. Yeah. Pool with the fin, like what do you call it exactly? Yeah, the mono fin. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and that's basically where it's just one big fin, which looks sort of like a mermaid tail, and you you stick your feet in it, and it's incredibly uncomfortable. Um, really tight on your yeah, feet. Really yeah. super tight <clears throat> because you you don't want to lose any of your efficiency in the fin. Mm-hmm. It's sort of, I guess, it would be the same as ski boots or something like that. Or right, the fin really becomes an extension of your 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 exactly. legs. Exactly, mm-hmm. and you want to use all of that surface area to maximize your propulsion in the water. You know, you mm-hmm. kind of start from your upper torso and you you kind of create this rhythm where all of it, including your legs and the monofin, propels you through the water. And are there regulations about how stiff the fin should be or is that a personal preference? Because I know they preference. come from really stiff. Yeah. Like in, in fin swimming, it's the sprinters want to use a really stiff fin and exactly. the distance swimmers will use one that has a lot more give to it. Exactly. And and that's personal preference. There's some, I kind of have a medium stiffness fin and then there's Dave Mullins, who was uh, a former world record holder and quite possibly will be again in the next couple of days. Um, you know, he has a, an incredibly soft fin. Um, it's, it's almost like butter. And, and this is a behemoth mm-hmm. of a man. I think he's like six foot five or something. And he, mm-hmm. he's got these trunks as legs, but um, he just has phenomenal techniques. So d- the tendency is that the better your technique, the softer the fin. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I hold the Australian national record in mm-hmm. uh, dynamic apnea, um, which is 218 meters. Right, and just to explain it in very elementary terms, you swim underwater in a 50-meter pool, and the exactly. idea is to see how far you can go without taking a breath. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's it. And so... 218? 18 meters. 218, which is, uh-huh. which is probably a, a little over two and a third lengths of a football field, I right. guess. It's, uh, it's 
four four links and a quarter of a 50 meter pool exactly. or almost nine links of a 25 yard pool or probably nine and change on a, a typical high school 25 yard pool in the United States. Uh, I know eight lengths is 180 meters, so probably be 10. Because yeah, 25 yeah, yards, yeah, yeah, 25 yeah. yards. Yeah, most pools right, in America so, are 25 yards. Right, with 225 yards is nine lengths. But okay. then converting yeah. it to meters, yeah, it's probably almost 10. Yeah, I have to do the math all the time because I know yeah. I'm, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm chasing records. So it's like 22.86 right. meters equals 25 yards. Right. Yeah. Where do you, uh, which pool do you use down here just to train? I train in Culver City. Oh, at the Plunge. Um, at the Plunge. Uh-huh. They're, they're a fantastic pool and Diego down there helps us out a lot and makes mm-hmm. sure that we're taken care of. And That's really the only pool around here that stays open at 50 meters most of the time or has liberal hours about that. Like the one, uh, Santa Monica College is only 50 meters like a couple mornings a week, like oh, really, really early too. I think right. you have to go really early in the morning. Wow. And they let you use the monofin. Like most pools yeah. won't let you use a monofin. No, they wouldn't. No, yeah. no. So it's it, dangerous. I mean, they're sharp. You can really injure somebody if you're like lap swimming with other swimmers with right, it. Right, right. Well, we, we're on the bottom. So, I mean, I almost... I've probably brushed someone once in the last twelve months, mm-hmm. and um, and they've got rubberized sides now, so they're uh, they're a lot easier. I mean, it's, it's just be like brushing up against someone, right? Um, but yeah, if you're on the surface, then you know they're they're quite wide, and you're taking up quite a bit of room. But because we're on the bottom of the pool, you know, p- people just think we're we're a novelty. They're like, like, oh, yeah, what is that? <laughs> what is that? Oh my god, <laughs> it's the merman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for people who don't know that, I mean, the the fin really is about it's almost three feet wide and at, at yeah. its base. I mean, it really is like a mermaid tail. Yeah. Um, all right. So 218 meters. Yes. Let's go, let's, let's back up to how this whole crazy journey began and then we can get into the details of that because I, it's a, it's a pretty funny story. Yeah. So I, um, I grew up spearfishing, which is essentially free diving, um, with a spear gun. And so I had done that since I was about 15 and I, in Sydney, is that where you grew up? In Australia, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, on the on the east coast of Australia, and um, you know we're quite spoiled over there. The water's warm, it's it's clear, and um, there's a lot of fish. And when I moved out here, I was like, oh god, no, I don't want to, I don't want to be spearfishing in LA. Mm-hmm. So I kind of held off on it for a while, and then eventually I, I got in there, and the, and the water's freezing. It's you know it's. It's 52 degrees, yeah. it's 10 foot of visibility. People have this idea that, oh, so, you know, sunny Southern yeah. California, yeah. the ocean. They watch. It's, the ocean is never really that warm here. Yeah. They watch Kilda for everyone. <laughs> know, yeah. Yeah. So I'd done that and I was doing that out here for a couple of years. And then I was I was at a pub in Venice one night and there was a couple of cute girls and uh, some of my mates wanted to kind of, you know, mosey on over. So we did and I was talking to this girl and... Um, and, you know, we started chatting in and she said she was a freediver. And I said, oh, well, so am I. And she said, oh, really? And she said, well, where do you compete? And I said, compete? No, you know, I just spearfish. And mm-hmm. she said, oh, I'm a competitive freediver. And I said, oh, so what do you do? And she said, well, we train in a pool. And I was like, what? You train in a pool? Just, that just defies everything about mm-hmm. the sport. And she said, yeah, yeah, no, we, we train in the pool and, um, and you should come training one day. And I said, well, I said, well, how do you train? And she said, oh, well, we do these you know, we do these oxygen tables and you know, it's an oxygen table. And so she said, yeah, and she pulled out her iPhone and she had this app which goes through a series of breath holds. And I said, all right, well, let's do one. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about one o'clock in the morning. How um, many beers did you have in you at this um, point? I actually don't drink. <laughs> you know, okay, good. I don't drink. So I knew I had a leg up on her, uh, but I was thinking, there's no way I'm letting a girl beat me. Uh-huh. It's just not happening. I don't care how 
you know, what she is. And so we do this um, warm-up. She called it a warm-up and it was a 2.45-minute breath hold, which I'm sure I had done in the past, but it's not something I'd actually sat there and figured mm-hmm. out. So I was like, oh, bugger. Um, so we're there. We're there at the bar. You know, she's got two or three girls to her left. I've got two or three guys to my right and everyone's like cheering us on. And um, and uh, and unbeknownst to me, she'd been sick um, previous previous couple of days, so you know I had a bit of an advantage, and and she she whimped out at about two minutes or something, and and I was like, I am not stopping this. So, you know, uh-huh. my my manhood was on the line. So, I got to the two forty five, and she's like, right, you know, you can come train with us, right? And and so that was that, and um, she uh, she went off to the Bahamas for a couple of weeks to do a competition, and then she came back, and it was winter, and it was cold, there was no fish, and you know, I rang her up and said, "Hey, what are you doing?" And and so yeah, I I went out there and I started training with them, and I just had a you know natural propensity to do it. So right, so it was just a fit from the beginning. How yeah. long ago was that? That was two years ago now. Right, only two years. Yeah. So and then yeah. and you set the Australian record a year ago, right? Yeah. So really, it was only a year from yeah commencement to national yeah. record holder. A year, That's a very crazy. full on year. Yeah. Yeah. How I, old are you now? I'm 33, uh-huh. I'm just turned 33. Okay. But I, the second time, I didn't have a mono fin, so I was just swimming in my spearfishing fins. And she said, um, she said, are you getting really good at this? You really should get a mono fin. And I was like, I am not spending $700 mm-hmm. for a mono fin, which I'm never going to use. And she said, oh, you should borrow Ben's. Unbeknownst to me, Jenna and Ben were both on the US national team. I didn't realize how yeah, good no, they were. Right. <clears throat> um, and uh, How many people are doing it in the United States? It is growing um, exponentially, and in, in the last two years, it's grown a lot. Um, there are, it's a good question. Um, when you tally up freedivers who freedive in the ocean, competitive pool, ocean, and spearfishing, there's probably a couple of thousand. Uh huh. Yeah. In I the mean, United States in or the worldwide? US, in, in the oh, US. wow, that's a lot. Yeah. I would not have thought that. I would yeah. have said, you know, maybe a hundred. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, uh, probably. Probably a hundred that that are you know competitive, mm-hmm. but um, definitely in the ocean. I mean, people out there freediving between Hawaii, Florida, right, and SoCal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of spear fishermen out there. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive. And the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch.
We're brought to you today by Seed. Gut health is all the rage. There's good reason for that. I've probably devoted, I don't know, at least a dozen episodes of this podcast to the many, many crucial ways the microbiome contributes to your overall well-being or lack thereof, and to the many diet and lifestyle protocols we should all adopt to promote gut health, from fermented food to fiber and everything in between, including, of course, the importance of supplementing with a probiotic. And the one that I have come to trust far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid, science-based, and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16-year-old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue, and it's been wonderful, as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily, personally, for years. I love it. My body loves it. And right now, for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer. That's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. And what was it about doing it in the pool versus doing it for depth in the ocean that appealed to you? I mean, did you consider the depth option? Yeah, definitely. And and there's there's been talks about me doing depth. Um, the first issue is a lack of sponsorship. Um, you can't do depth in the US. Mm-hmm. So you're either, either going to the Bahamas, the Mediterranean or Dubai. So it becomes prohibitively expensive when you take into account flights and accommodation and, you know, competition fees and that sort of thing. Right. Um, whereas the pool, I can train any day I want, you know, for a couple of bucks. 
um, and there's a pool 15 minutes from me. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a way that I can train all year round. And I really have a love of the ocean, and I, you know I love spear fishing, and I love bringing bringing fish home for the family. Um, and obviously, you know it's sustainable, and it's it's the most sustainable way of of consuming food. So it's really important to us that that I do that. And I, you know, I'm very careful about what I buy in the store and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, and yeah, so generally when I'm out in the ocean, I, I want to be doing something that's it's just for me and it's not competitive. And mm-hmm. I mean, free, everyone has a love hate relationship with freediving because it is such a stressful sport. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just kind of get so amped up, um, that it's nice to have a break and just have fun in the ocean. Right. I may, you know, a lot of people have been trying to get me into depth because it's, from everything people have told me, it's um, it's much more pleasant. It's much more. Um, it's less taxing mentally, mm-hmm. um, and and you get narcosis. So that's that's it's a lot less painful too. Tell me what that is. Um, it it's sort of like. I mean, I've never taken drugs, but from what I what I what I can ascertain, it's kind of like being stoned. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, severe cases of narcosis, you'll start hallucinating. Um, but um, but it's it's a result of lack of oxygen, or it's no, <clears throat> it's um, it's pressure at depth. Oh, I see. So I mean, narcosis, from what I understand, and depth is not my specialty, kicks in. You know, varies for different people, but usually around seventy meters. Mm-hmm. Um, what's that times three? About two hundred thirty feet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, as with the compression on your lungs, it becomes less painful because your contractions aren't as strong. I see. Against the limitations. Right, right, of right, right, right. Um, and also mentally, if you're diving, you know, say for example, you're diving to 50 or 100 meters, you know, you go down to 100 and then there's, there is no option but to come back up. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's very simple really. You don't have a choice. You just have to come back up. Whereas when you're competing in the pool, if you're having a bad day or it hurts too much, you're, you're only three or eight feet from the surface. Right. So it's, it's very easy to quit. And, you know, that happens a lot in the pool. And because you don't have the compression on, on your lungs, then it, it becomes much more painful. Um, and, the, and, and the pain doesn't diminish. And you're also constantly swimming, whereas in depth you have that free ride from, you know, 30 metres down. Right, right. Um, that's interesting. The pressure on your body makes it less painful. Yeah. That, well, that's, you know, that's, that's what everyone tells me. And, um, but the, the challenge with depth is there's a... There's the technical, physiological aspect of having to equalize because you only have so much air in your mouth to mm-hmm. use to clear your station tubes. Mm-hmm. So once you get to a certain depth, you have to find reserves of air in order to clear your ears. Oh, wow. And so what people do is they do this, this thing called reverse packing and that's where they use their diaphragm to squeeze air up and into their mouth so that they can clear their ears. Uh-huh. And that is the limiting factor for probably maybe 60, 70% of freedivers is that they can't clear their ears. And, and that is also the greatest <clears throat> injury is perforated eardrums mm-hmm. um, because they'll ride their ears too far and then they'll perf an ear. Right. And how do you, I mean, how do you develop the ability to control your diaphragm in that way? Like, it seems like, you know, how do you even begin to learn how to manipulate that, like, in that way? Like, it's such a bizarre, specific thing to learn, to learn you know? How do you even approach that? Exactly. And you're speaking to someone who has absolutely no idea of how to do that. <laughs> right. I mean, I've, I've been told conceptually how yeah. it's done. And I've, there are ways that you can try to attempt it um, 
without going to depth, and that's called um, on on an exhale. So what happens is if you if you blow the air out of your lungs and you and you dive to 10, 15 feet, you'll actually emulate diving to two hundred feet mm-hmm. because you don't have the air in your lungs, and so you're having to pull that up. Right. And I've tried that a couple of times, and I've it's been an abysmal failure. Right. Wow. Yeah. That's, just trying that's to equalize. crazy. Yeah. So so um so you realize that you have this proficiency and you want to give it a go and you end up hiring a, a coach, right? To train um, you for the, to, to train you. I mean, I want to, I want to know about yeah. like what the preparation is like and what the daily kind of training routine looks like for something like this. So I just, I was doing a lot of, well, I was getting a lot of advice from the guys on the U S team. Um, and, and then it was just the, the beauty of the internet. You know, I was reading up, I was getting as much literature as I could. And, um, and then I was just training the pool and I was making steady gains. So I didn't really have to do anything at that point because I was still making big gains. Mm-hmm. You know, I started off with probably a hundred meter dynamic and then, and that was in bifins. Um, and then I put on a monofin. I, I think at that point, my best was 125 meters with bifins, traditional fins. Mm-hmm. And then Jenna said, well, you really need to put on a mono. So I borrowed Ben's. And the first time I did it, I had no idea what I was doing. And I did 110 meters. And then the second time I went for a max attempt, I did 175, which mm-hmm. at the time was a US <coughs> record. And that's when I went, oh, mm-hmm. okay, well, this is fun. Right. You know, whenever you're doing well at something, it's always immediately fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's not so hard. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, so, the difference between like spearfishing bifins and a monofin is yeah. night and day. Yeah, exactly. And it's a completely different set of muscles and I didn't know what those muscles were uh-huh. or how to use them. Right. So then I spent the best part of six months just training technique and really drilling my dolphin kick. And that's where I started working with Wayne Judge, who's an Australian coach mm-hmm. um, and, and, you know, one of the, one of the premier coaches going around. Um, and we just started talking online. Um, I knew some people at Sydney Freedivers and, and Wayne at the time was living in Gladstone, which is this really small town in, in kind of mid-northern Queensland. Mm-hmm. And, and we worked online and, you know, he's, he never charged me a cent. Um, he oh. just did it out of the love of the sport and, and was excited about a, a new up-and-coming Australian. And so what we would do is he'd give me dra- training drills and I'd go off and do them. Um, always spotted. This is a sport where you always have someone on deck watching you. Right. Because, you know, you could black out at any any moment's notice. Um, so, you know, I'd, I'd just train with one of the guys on the team and I would have these drills and I'd go down there with, you know, a drill. And then once a week I would have someone video me with a GoPro underwater doing a couple of 50s and I'd upload it and I'd send it to him and he'd critique my, my, my technique. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, it could be something as little as, you know, the fore aft position of my hand, you know, or your, your fingers right. are pointed too high or they're too low or, you know, you need more flexibility in your shoulders, you're not streamlined enough. So, you know, then it was about three hours a week of doing flexibility work in the gym just to try and really, mm-hmm. um, you know, get hyper hypermobile. And I think women have... But not doing a lot of strength work, just... No, I did no strength work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually... No core. I would think that doing some solid core work would be of benefit. Yeah, do 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 five kilometers of kickboard work. Yeah, uh, and and you'll get that I, core strength. Like, I've done that. I know what yeah, that's like. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> you know that'll give you core strength. Uh-huh. Um, but I was, I mean, I'd I'd you know done a lot of weight training growing up, and that was that was purely for vanity, you mm-hmm. know, and, right. and for my acting career and that sort of thing. And um, I stopped weight training because 
you know, I really wanted to get as flexible as possible and I didn't want any excess muscle right. because that would consume more oxygen. Right. Um, so I, I quit the weight training and, uh, and I do some weight training now in the preseason, um, but then probably a month out from a competition, I'll, I'll stop that. Right. And then, and when you're going to the pool, is it always, you know, at the bottom of the pool holding your breath or are you doing traditional swim sets and regular kind of swimming and, and yeah. like aerobic kind of work? Early on in the season, it's all aerobic. It's all on the surface. It's all mm-hmm. kickboard work. It's all technique work. Um, I might do some CO2 tables, which is, I'm, and I'm a terrible swimmer, by the way, um, when it comes to, you know, freestyle and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. But but what I'll do is I'll do, um, you know, maybe maybe 1,200 meters uh, freestyle. And what I'll do is on the, on the th- say on the first 100, I'll breathe every fourth stroke mm-hmm. and then on the second every sixth and mm-hmm. then on the eighth and on the twelfth and then on the fourteenth and then I'll come back down again mm-hmm. and for you know the, the freestylers probably take two or three breaths on a 50 right <laughs> and you know do it in 25 strokes or something I'm, I'm not that guy so mm-hmm. halfway through it I've got a, a, a very strong headache mm-hmm. from from co2 mm-hmm. overload um, so I'll do that preseason, early season but to do that kind of like hypoxic work where you're you know you're you're staggering the time or the number of strokes in between breaths and kind of getting your lungs to, you know, acclimate to that. I mean, has that been established to be something that can improve your capacity to hold your breath in these distances? Like, is there an equation where that actually, like, I'm trying to understand what the kind of things you do are, like how they translate into being able to hold your breath longer. Right. That, uh, that is CO2 tolerance work. So basically what happens physiologically is when you hold your breath and then you get that urge to breathe, that has nothing to do with the amount of oxygen in your body. That is CO2 that's building up in your system. And so you've got to think of CO2 as kind of like a, a, a fuel gauge. So when it gets to a certain level, it, it just goes to that, you know, that warning light, you're getting empty. So some kind of mental trigger happens yeah. where it says you need to breathe right now, even though you actually Really exactly. don't need to. Yeah, and it's a safety <clears throat> mechanism. It's a, it's a, you know, it's the fight or flight. It's a survival mechanism. Right. So, you know, I've done tests in hospitals where, in research labs, where they will increase the amount of CO two that I'm breathing, but they'll keep the oxygen level at the same rate. So I'm, I'm essentially just breathing normal air, but they're increasing the level of CO two. And mm-hmm. what happens is, all of a sudden, I'm out of breath. It's like you know, living in Los Angeles. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's good training here for yeah. what you do, right? Yeah. So CO2 tolerance work is getting used to the discomfort of having high levels of CO2 in your system. So it's kind of like pain tolerance work. I see. It has, it, as far as I know, and there's still, free diving is something we're learning about, you know, a lot and, and new stuff comes out you know, every couple of months. Right. But as you become more acclimated to that, like let's say a higher percentage of CO2 yeah. in your system, do you sort of like when you get stronger in the weight room, then a heavy weight doesn't feel heavy anymore? Does that, exactly. does it sort of go away? Whereas, you know, oh, exactly. now it doesn't feel like anything, even though I have all this CO2, I'm not f- experiencing that discomfort. Exactly. I mean, you still experience it, but it diminishes. Right. And I got you. A lot of free diving is that, so you start a swim and then it gets incredibly difficult. Um, and you get, you're getting big contractions and it's really hurting and it's about overcoming that fight or flight thing mentally mm-hmm. and then it tends to get easier because you kind of settle into a groove and then, you know, the last stretch of the swim is just, it's a lot of CO2. I mean, different people experience it differently. So when you, when you go, for example, 218 meters, at what point do you first start to experience that kind of 
sympathetic nervous system discomfort. I have my first contraction just before the 50. So that's like that first involuntary. Already, 50 meters already. like Uh that. Um, And that's kind of like your your dive reflex kicking in. Mm -hmm. It's it's called MDR. Mm -hmm. Um, And then at around about, and this seems to happen for most people, at around about 75 meters. And this happens whether you do a one. 20 swim or whether you do a 250 swim uh-huh. um, at about 75 meters you want to quit and uh, I mean I've worked with so many athletes who would just come up at 75 like on the on the meter you know it's something just that so, happens that's not that far no it's not it's, it's I mean that's not far laps. at all yeah. I mean I don't, you're going a lot slower but I mean you know yeah. I can go 100 meters with a monofin underwater no yeah. big deal and go hard so yeah. and you guys are going really slow yeah. it's all about conservation and yeah and it's that time, I think. It's that time underwater. When you get to about 75 and you think, oh, you know what? This isn't my day. Mm-hmm. Do I want to go through and endure the rest of this pain? And I have that pretty much every swim. And then it's about mentally overcoming that obstacle. And for me, it lasts from around, you know, 75, 80 meters till about 120, 125. Without doubt, 75 to 125 is my hardest point of the swim interesting because that's only halfway and then you break through it's and not it's not even halfway yeah, yeah. right right <clears throat> yeah it's about a third into it it's when mm-hmm. it starts getting and then when I get to about 125 it starts to get easier because I've, I have that mental carrot of going well the 150 mark is only 20 minutes in front of me right and then I get to 150 and I make the turn and that's when it starts to get painful that's when it's for me it's you know and, and other people don't experience any pain but I do and you know from about one it's actually quite distracting the pain. You know, 150 is like, oh God, you know, here we go. And from about 175, I'm so focused on accepting the pain that, you know, 200 comes and goes mm-hmm. and then it's pushing on. And I mean, I've done, I've done greater distances in training. I just right. haven't had the opportunity to. How do, you, uh, how do you decide how hard to push off the wall? I mean, that's got to be like a, trying to find the right amount. Because if you push off too lightly, you're not getting enough inertia and you're going to have to use the fin to generate that forward propulsion. But if you push off too hard, you're going anaerobic. And right? you're talking about all the things that is freediving. It's about finding the optimum range of your efficiency. And some people um, go a bit quicker. And then other people go slower. I mean, mm-hmm. the French are notoriously quick. It's almost like they're racing. And then you get the Kiwis and, and Dave Mullins, who we were talking about earlier, who's notoriously slow. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I do a f- I do 50 meters around about the 47-second mark, which mm-hmm. tends to be on the slower side. Um, most of the US team do them, you know, low 40s. And then you get someone like Mullins, who's like mid-50s. Um, so, yeah, it's about finding your range and where your efficiency is. And I probably spent you know, six, 12 months figuring out where I was. I was around about the 50 second mark. Uh-huh. And then I thought that, that is a bit quick. I need to, a bit slow. I need to pick it up a bit. Have you ever tried to just go really hard and see how far you could go before you uh, like, no. blocked, you know, no. like go fast? No. I mean, I've done hundred meter sprints, uh-huh. um, but you know, I've gone as quick as 44 seconds for a 200, mm-hmm. 44 a lap. And yeah, I just found that harder. And mm-hmm. to take the extra three seconds a lap. Right. And does anybody do a flip turn or is it all grabbing yeah. the wall? Yes. Yeah, some, yeah, people, some guys yeah. do. There's, man, there is, there is as many turns as there are free divers. There's, right. There's the flip turn. There's the, where they come in. I'm, I'm trying to describe it on a podcast. They kind of rotate 90 degrees. Oh, pivot their body. Pivot, yeah, 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 pivot so that they're 
no longer they're facing the side of the pool mm-hmm. and then as they come around, they'll come into a flip turn then there are guys who don't kick off the wall at all they'll come into the wall and they'll just use they'll fold up their their legs and they'll just push off with one arm and turn oh, around wow. yeah and then i do this hybrid where i you i touch the wall to to do the initial pivot and then i'll use my feet to gently kick off the wall mm-hmm. and if i can hold a, a tight streamline then just off a gentle push i'll get a good you know six meters mm. um does anybody swim on their back? Uh, I'm going to say no, but there is one guy who uh, at one point set a US record, Wes Lapp, who did the oddest thing. He did, I think he said it in a 25-meter pool. I'm not sure. I think it was 25. He did 25 on his front and did a half flip turn, I guess, and then did 25 on his back uh-huh. and then did a half flip turn <clears> and did 25 on his front. And it just made me dizzy watching it. Right, um, but he's you would the only get dizzy, guy I know. but but I think for some people, doing it on your back, there's it's it's more efficient. Yeah, I mean, when I do surface work, I can do the dolphin kick much easier on my back than mm-hmm. I can on my front. Right, um, and again, a lot of that is is flexibility in the pelvis, mm-hmm. um, and you know, if you've been doing that since a very young age, you're going to have much better flexibility. Right. Women tend to have better flexibility right. as well. But that you know, for someone who for me who started it two years ago, something I work on a lot. Right, you know, a lot of my training is about. Is about technique, right? So you're doing you're doing pool work, you're doing kickboard work, technique work, flexibility, yoga, um, and what is the what is the meditation aspect of it look like like on a daily basis? Um, I do most of my meditation first thing in the morning, um, and a lot of that incorporates relaxation, visualization. Um, is there a specific technique that you do or that you've learned to do or? You just it's, found your own. I've found my own. Like over the time, I've done lots of different types of meditation, um, from basic relaxation work to you know when I was working in the theatre, to what? Oh no, it's fine. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, Airplanes flying over. Um, these mics pick it up. It's fine if they do. I do it at home. Like the do- you know, the kids come in and there's motorcycles uh-huh. driving. Don't worry about it. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, so yeah, when it comes to relaxation, I do a kind of hybrid of a, of a few different things. Uh, a lot of it's about relaxation and working with the breath to slow down my metabolic rate and also to lower my heart rate. Um, and then I do a lot of stuff which kind of incorporates um, just accepting the state that my body's in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of perhaps a little difficult to, to explain, but, you know, when you're going through different mental aspects, you know, it's about... Accepting. Surrendering to what is. You know, that's a great way of, <laughs> yeah. of saying it. It's, yeah, surrendering. As, as exactly. Eckhart Tolle would say, I guess. Um, yeah, God, it was a long time since I read his book. Um, yeah, and that's exactly what it is. It's just accepting the state you're in mm-hmm. and, and whatever thoughts that are coming in and just letting them come come and go, you know, letting mm-hmm. those negative thoughts come and go. And we all have them. And, you know, a friend of mine says that the water never lies and and there isn't a more truthful statement because when you are under and you are under, you know, my swim's take around about three and a half minutes. A lot of thoughts come and go in those three and a half minutes. And a lot of the meditation I do is about accepting those thoughts and letting them come and go and not listening to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then there's, you know, the TM work I do and, um, and then there's a the visualization. And that's where I mentally go through the swim from five minutes before until a minute after it's ended. Right. And I meticulously go through every single detail of Mm -hmm. the swim, including making mistakes in the swim, including those negative thoughts that come in at 75 metres, 
um, you know, overcoming things that I'm doing wrong. You know, my technique tends to start going when I'm in that pain. So, you know, when I'm visualizing that swim, when I get to about 160 odd meters, I start thinking about my technique and, mm-hmm. and it's about positive, positive thoughts rather than negative ones. So, you know, while you're in the swim, you know, it's, it's, it's quite normal for someone to say, oh, damn, my, you know, my kick's off or, you know, that was a bad kick or no, you know, I stuffed up that turn and, mm-hmm. you know, it's all about just skipping that thought and going to, okay, Tank, let's, let's fix the next kick. Now that's a better kick. Come on. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Let's try and do that again. All right. No, that wasn't so bad, but that's all right. Let's try another one. And releasing, uh, <clears throat> releasing, like releasing the judgment upon yourself. Exactly. And, and the visualization being so refined and specific and rehearsed so that by the time you're doing the event, it's a foregone conclusion. Exactly. I would imagine it's pretty similar in your acting too. I mean, to kind of visualizing, you know, the rehearsal process or visualizing how you're going to, you know, sort of embody this different persona or what have you to actually, you know, walk in the shoes of another human being and then have it become part of you. That's a great point, actually. I never, I never really thought about that. But, do you know, as an actor from a, from a very early age, you're working on really exercising the muscle of imagination and getting it as vivid and as detailed as possible, especially working in the theatre. So, you know, I never thought about that because that I would say is probably my greatest strength is my mental uh, aspect of the sport because I'm still learning an incredible amount. So there's a, there's a high level of inexperience and there's also my techniques, you know, average at best. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I'm known for not quitting and, and pushing through, you know, regardless of how bad the swim is or whether I'm, you know, competing injured or sick or whatever. And, and I've actually had to change in the last six months the way I do my visualization because, as you said, I've always done it to the point where I've, I've put a, a, a finite limit on it. So um, the, the no fins record is 175 meters. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the nationals this year, I, I had visualized that swim so many times in my head to – go to 176 meters and then to come up and at about 140 I just kind of went into autopilot and I'd started to involuntarily lose air and that's the first sign of severe hypoxia Mm -hmm. um, which doesn't ordinarily happen for me at 140 but I just I didn't really think of it and so because I'd mentally done the swim so many times in my head I had just pushed on anyway and at 172 meters and I really should have come up at probably about 160, I'd blacked out underwater. And, you know, that's just that's just really interesting in the sense that how how much visualization can have a play on your performance. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's fine if you're a marathon runner or a golfer or whatever, but, you know, so now when I visualize my swims, I, I leave them open-ended. Um, you know, I probably visualize a no-fin swim to 140, 150 mm-hmm. and then just leave it. Right, interesting. I mean, I talk about, meditation quite a bit on the podcast and I, I truly truly believe that it is sort of the 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 greatest kind of unexplored territory for improving your athletic performance like it just doesn't get the attention it deserves and it's it snaps into crystal clear focus in a sport like yours but um, because it's I don't think there's anybody who could perform at your level without being very very proficient and practiced and and uh, devoted to a meditation practice, like a, it has, to, you know, anybody at your level has got to be doing that all the time, but you don't really see it so much in other sports. And I love that idea of, 
learning to feel the negative thoughts that pop up and, and having this sort of wherewithal to dismiss them. And it begs the question of your sort of higher consciousness versus your lower thinking mind that's running a tape or whatever, and being able to distinguish between those two things. Because innately or by default, I'll just assume that I am my thoughts, no matter where they're coming from. Well, if I'm thinking this, then it must be so, or that must be where I'm coming from. But to be able to kind of stop in mid-thought and say, oh, that's interesting that that's coming up, but I'm going to choose to move away from that and move in this other direction to, to literally bifurcate these things and say, these are two different things. Like I'm, I'm sort of this higher consciousness looking down upon, you know, this lower entity that's trying to push me in a negative direction and I'm going to make a different choice, you know, and that doesn't come naturally, you know, that only comes through practice. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. I, uh, most freedivers tend to not do big swims or max efforts very often mm-hmm. and, and some will only save them for the race event whereas because I'm aware of my experience and have n- not doing that many competitions I tend to do a lot of big swims and you know I probably did 20, 20 swims of 200 meters plus um, and what I learned from that was regardless of how I was feeling it had very little effect to do with my performance interesting my worst my absolute worst swim to date mentally was the first time I cracked the Australian national record in training, in training. Mm -hmm. I'd quit the sport halfway through the swim. I'd said, I'm not getting any better. (laughs) That's okay. You're not getting any better. The more you train, the worse you feel. You can let this go. Just finish this swim and then we can walk away from this sport for a month or two and then we can come back. And and that was a big eye-opener for me that said that what I'm thinking on a subconscious level or a conscious level has nothing to do with my performance. Mm. And and that's why I was doing so many of those big swims because in those swims I was making mistakes, none of them were perfect, and I could still pull out a 200. I mean, I remember one swim, I did 218. This was before I, I went for that record attempt. And I stuffed up the turn so bad at 200 that I ended up in the next lane. Uh-huh. And I had to come <laughs> back around under the lane rope oh, wow. and go to 218. And that's when I got a, a level of confidence that I'd never had before. And, and I get those from making right, mistakes. So that, that could have been a 224 swim or something yeah, like that. You know, and I've yeah. since done that. I've since you know, done 230 swims. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's a really good point you make. Uh, I think, you know, for me, I spend in training, I probably spend 40% of my time doing meditation and mental work, mm-hmm. 40% um, pull and strength and then the other 20 is flexibility right and you go to yoga for the flexibility or is that like gym work i do i do a combination of stuff i do some very light yoga i have some shoulder problems so i'm I'm careful with the 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 harder stuff um i work with some people at equinox um who do uh therapy ball work so Mm -hmm. the first probably 15 minutes of the hour class is using the, the massage therapy balls to right. really break down tissue and open up your flexibility. And then the, the last 40 minutes is is like a, a real stretchy kind of program mm-hmm. rather than strength-based. There's a little bit of strength in there. but And then I'll just go to the gym and, you know, I'll get out on the mat and I'll, I'll bring out the roller and I'll, you know, roll out for 10, 15 minutes and then I'll do a whole series of stretches, you know, starting from my ankles, ankles, mm-hmm. you know, flexibility right up to my shoulders and, you know, my, 
my pecs and right. And do you ever do uh, hypoxic breathing exercises like dry land hyperventilation stuff? Um, we don't do any hyperventilation. That's like the the worst thing for freedom. Oh, is it? And that's the first thing I say to anyone is we never, 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 never hyperventilate. Why is that? Because that remember we were talking about the CO two and how that's kind of like a, an indicator of of um, of, of you know that urge to breathe. Mm-hmm. So when you hyperventilate, you unnaturally lower the level of CO two in your system. So it takes out that warning light. So uh, um, you, people tend to finish their swims in a lot worse shape, and that's how you black out um, because you don't see the signals coming. So if you don't hyperventilate, you tend to be much sharper at the end. Right. Um, and and you know no no ocean spear fisherman you know, now hyperventilates, whereas in the past, it was a big thing. Interesting. Yeah. So before your event, I was envisioning like you're, you know, trying to get as much oxygen into your system and then you go under. Like that's what swimmers do a little bit, you know. So what, you just get super calm and just take one breath and go under and that's it? Exactly. I just do really small tidal breathing, like Mm -hmm. as if you were sleeping, that, that amount of breath. But you're ultimately trying to fill your lungs up as much as possible, right? So you have to be taking this tremendously huge breath, right? Yeah, before and you that's go the under. one breath that I, I take. I yeah. gotcha. But before that, the minutes before that, there's no hyperventilation. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I do, I do dry land work. I do um, what are called oxygen and CO2 tables. And that's an O2 table is basically where you uh, increase the, the breath hold. So you could start with say a three and a half minute breath hold to have two minute recovery, mm-hmm. four minute breath hold, two minute recovery. So it's like an interval workout, except it's you're a, just sitting there holding your breath. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. laying on my yeah. bed, hoping I don't put my pants uh-huh. in pain. Um, and then the CO2 work is you, your your breath hold remains constant, but your recovery diminishes. I see. So what you're doing is you're keeping your O2 Accumul- levels up. You're accumulating the CO2 and you're, I gotcha. Yeah, so the last, you know, the last probably three breath holds I do will be, you know, four and a half minutes, but I'll get 15 seconds to breathe. So it'll be mm-hmm. four and a half, 15 seconds, four and a half, 15 seconds, four and a half. Right. Um, and then, you know, similar stuff on the bike, on a, on a, in, in the gym, you know, I go to Equinox in Santa Monica and, you know, you just go down there and, um, you know, get on the, usually the seated bike. I like mm-hmm. that one more so I don't have right. to expend as much energy. And, you know, just do minute breath holds, two minute breath holds. Um, while you're pedaling. While you're pedaling. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> you have to be a little bit more conservative when you're doing it on the bike because if you do blackout, you know, you, one, it'll be awfully embarrassing. And two, you know, you could hurt yourself. Whereas right. if I'm laying on a yoga mat, then, you know, if I were to blackout, then it's fine. Nothing's going to happen to me. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. 
But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. And on the subject of blacking out, I mean, I watched the videos um, of, uh, of some of your efforts and, and there was one uh, where you're, you finish up and you surface and your fingers are all kind of, you know, your, it looks like your, your hands turn into these claws, right? And you, I mean, I've done, I've done hypoxic breathing work right. and that happens to my hands. Like right. that must be the opposite of that, being hyper-oxygenated or something. Like right. where you, suddenly you, you're, you're, you have this involuntary thing where your muscles start to do strange things and you were shaking. Yeah. And it was like you were trying to sort of compose yourself and get oxygen into your system. But what is, what is going on when that's happening? So as... Throughout the swim, your oxygen obviously depletes and then you get to a point where your body will systematically start shutting down parts, different organs or, or mm -hmm. whatever you don't need. And, and one of the first things to go is usually is the, um, your diaphragm, um, your dig digestive tract rather because that, that consumes a lot of energy. So unfortunately, some guys in the sport have been known to have what we affectionately call pants. a brownout, yeah. um, which can happen... <laughs> Which can happen to marathon yeah. runners a lot or, or Ironman and, and that of sort of course. thing. Um, so at some point your body will say, okay, I need the reserve of oxygen to keep the vital organs going. So your body will just switch off and that's when you black out. Now, on the way to that, you can experience something Because your brain uses a lot of, yeah, so a lot of oxygen, right? Yeah, so, so whatever's left right. is saying. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like thinking you're flying a plane and you're running out of fuel and then so the pilot switches off two of the engines mm -hmm. and just coasts on the other two. That's right. pretty much what's happening. And, and something that can happen is called LMC, which is um, an acronym for loss of motor control. Um, and it's affectionately called Samba. And it's when you start involuntarily shaking. So you kind of, it looks like a bad dance. Um, and so when you, you can come up and there's, there's a period of time before you get to re-oxygenate your blood because you can, you can take a breath and it's in your lungs, but then it needs to transfer from your lungs to your blood. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of hairy, hairy kind of 10 seconds or so when you first come up. I employ a process called hook breathing and it's something that was invented by US fighter pilots, uh, I think in World War II, someone just after mm -hmm. World War II. What happens is when you, when you pull a certain amount of Gs in an aircraft, your blood pressure plummets. And what that was causing, that was causing pilots to black out. Right. So they had to find an artificial way of, there's actually a great video of a guy doing it online in, um, 
in a simulator. Mm-hmm. Um, so what you have to do is you have to artificially find a way to increase your blood pressure to maintain it at a certain level because if, if it drops to a certain level, you will black out. And so when I come up, um, there are two things I'm doing. One is I'm doing my best not to exhale a lot of oxy- a lot of CO2 because as soon as that CO2 drops, your body says, oh, okay, you're fine and your, your blood pressure will do the same mm-hmm. and that's when you black out. Um, and the other thing I do is I do this thing called hook breathing where it's you basically you bear down a lot of pressure on your head and you can see it in the videos. It's really hard to, des- to describe but it's almost like you're trying to blow out but you, you keep your mouth closed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost... It's almost just imagine if you're incredibly constipated and you, you're pushing really hard, except right. you're doing it in your head, um, and that can that can keep a keep a blank out of bay. Yeah, it it elevates your blood pressure. Yeah, it does, and it stops you from blacking out. Uh-huh. And I I will try not to do anything. You know, I have 15 seconds, so I'll, what I do is my technique is when I come up from my swim, I'll throw my arms straight over the pool's edge, and I'll support myself. By, by ramming my fists under my chin. So if I do black out, if my head wants to drop or if I am in a samba, um, I can keep my head elevated because one of the rules is, is if you have a head dip, if, you're, if your mouth dips below the surface once you come up, it's an immediate blackout. That's immediate disqualification. Even if you actually didn't black out. Yeah, well, I mean, if you can't, yes. Your head nods, yes. right. If, you, if your head nods or, you know, you might come up and then accidentally kind of go back down again, that, any of that stuff is a blackout, is a DQ. But what happens is a lot of people get these things called head nods, um, and that's a, just a little momentary, momentary, momentarily, uh, momentarily, Momenta- a momentary blackout. Yeah, is momentarily yeah. a word? Momentarily, damn it, yeah. it is now. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, a momentary blackout. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so I get up and I brace myself. It's almost like I'm in a, in a, you know. A boxer's huddle, you know, when a boxer's tight, he kind of uh-huh. wraps himself around. So I do that around the gutter of the pool or around the lane rope. And then I do a couple of these hook breaths and then I start breathing. And that's, I will not take my arms off that side of the pool until I've had a good eight or nine seconds. Because I have had in, in swims past where I've rushed to my mask and just letting go of one one hand. And then I've I've kind of lost control and I've had a mm-hmm. samba. Right. Um so yeah, that's what's going on there. And I mean, is it like you know, are the shades closing? Like it's dark around the corners, and you have stars in your eyes, and you're just yeah. trying to battle to not pass out. I mean, yeah, what's, exactly. what are you seeing, and like, what are you experiencing when that's? I'm going seeing on? that at the end of my swim. Uh huh. So at that point, I'm I'm technically about to get into a blackout. So then it's like get out of here, and let's, you know, it's almost like skirting unconsciousness and then bringing it back around. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess another way of describing it is to use another boxer's analogy is is when you do get knocked out, you know, the the, the decent boxer will will suck up seven or eight seconds on the floor before he, you know, rushes to stand up right. to soak it up. And it's that sort of thing. I'm mm-hmm. it's that sort of thing where I'm right. just milking my time and And do you ever have like some kind of like have you ever had like a strange like like uh, what would you call it? Like a psychedelic experience? I mean, like where does your consciousness go when you're in this like altered state? Like, it, it, you know, does time stop? Does it accelerate? Are you, you know, having weird kind of dreamlike thoughts? I mean, what is going on? Yeah, for me, the the last fifty meters tends to feel the quickest, um, and I think that's in part I'm so distracted by the pain and keeping everything together, and and a part of it is by the end of it you're your mental capacity is diminishing. At least it is for me. Mm-hmm. Um, some people go into 
a euphoric state towards the end of their swim and it feels so easy and then they're, and then they're gone. And they're, then they're those people are always blacking out. Right. Um, <clears throat> it's easier if you're having big warning bells, you know, like, oh, my, vid- my vision's starting to go or um, I'm losing focus um, or I'm seeing, you know, little speckly bits or I'm getting tunnel vision or my vision's going black and black and white. So as soon as I start seeing those, another big thing for me is involuntary um, air loss. So it gets to the point where I can't hold air in my mouth anymore and I get these little tufts of air. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll see that in that record swim where oh, I was so gone. From about 208 or 210 metres on, I'm just losing constant stream of air. Um, but for me, black it's, it's when you come to from a blackout, it's, it's like coming off morphine. It's the mm-hmm. most euphoric feeling. I've ever felt it's it's a complete dreamlike state. I I blacked out uh, at the nationals. I was I was I had a, a big blackout at the nationals, and um, when I when I came to, I remember I felt like you know the experience when you when you're waking up from a nice dream but you haven't opened your eyes yet, but mm-hmm. you know you you're kind of coming to. It was that feeling where I just felt oh wow this feels so lovely, mm-hmm. and I opened my eyes and two guys were were kind of holding me. And, and the first thing I said was, wow, I feel so dreamy. <laughs> it was, it I mean, was quite funny. They have, uh, they must have, you know, a pretty decent medical staff at these events. I mean, we got to talk a little bit about, I mean, I can imagine somebody listening to this going, well, this is insane. Like, you know, yeah. this guy's crazy. Like, this is just dangerous. Like, why is he even doing it? You know, like, can, can we speak to the sort of inherent dangers of this or, or? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, how does that work? Well, first of all, Blackouts look a lot worse than they are. When, when people see them, they, they tend to freak out a bit, especially to the uninitiated. Um, but really, a blackout is is pretty much the same as just passing out. You know, the same feeling you get when you stand up too quickly and you feel whizzy. And you know, most people have passed out at some point or another. In terms of impacts on your body, you know, physiologically, it, it's nothing. There's still plenty of oxygen in in your in your body. And then once you start breathing again, you're completely fine. And and I've blacked out in the past and, you know, five minutes later gone back into doing, a, you know, a half-hour warm-down. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, you know, there's, there tends to be a, a bit of misinformation going out there. I, I mean, the, the, the critical thing with freediving is there is absolutely nothing wrong with blacking out on the surface. If you black out underwater and you're not being supervised, then you will drown. I mean, it's, right. It's I mean, that if you simple. and if you're if you're a depth diver and you're down, you know, twenty meters or something like that, and, and you experience that, that's a different animal altogether. I would imagine. It's it's not too dissimilar because what happens at depth is most people get what's called shallow water blackout. It's very rare. You know, I think like something like ninety five percent of blackouts in depth happen in the top ten meters. Um, because why is that, why, why what is what is that attributable to? I think and and don't quote me on this, but I think it's the shift in the blood in your body. The blood's re-entering the rest of your body because the compression is uh-huh. you know, the biggest pressure differential in the, is in the top 15, 20 meters. Interesting. So and and a lot of depth divers will really slow down in the last ten meters to just kind of allow themselves to acclimate a little bit. So you have safety divers. You have a safety diver usually. I think. I think there's one at 15 meters and there's one at 30. So what happens is is you'll do your dive and then they'll time it so then they'll meet you at 30 on the way back up. Mm-hmm. And then that guy will meet you and he will take you to 15. And then another guy will be there waiting for you at 15 and he'll take you to the surface. Mm-hmm. So if you do black out, you know, it's just a matter of a guy sticking his 
hand under your chin to keep your mouth closed and bring you to the surface. There's mm-hmm. this survival mechanism that we have that you, you basically your trachea shuts off so water cannot enter your lungs. So when you get to the surface, if you are blacked out, you should, the, I mean, the only thing that happens is, is a safety diver will remind you to breathe, he'll say your name and he'll give you a light tap on the face and blow across your eyelids. Mm-hmm. And that's just, you just need a, a, enough to just remind you, hey, hey, dude, you know, start breathing again. Yeah, it's crazy go, that you have to be reminded to breathe. Yeah, though. especially when you're a free diver because you spend so much time telling yourself don't breathe that you just, you need right. that, you know. And, and some people just black out for a second and, and then that's fine. So, you know, as I said, there has never been in competition a serious injury in free diving. Is that right? Interesting. Yeah, let alone a, a fatality. There's and Oh, and the last safety mechanism with depth is, is every diver is, attached to a lanyard and the lanyard is attached to the rope. So if someone does black out at depth, they have a last resort fail-safe mechanism of pulling them back up. Yanking them up. Since the lanyard has been brought into freediving, it has never been employed once. So oh, wow. Never how, long, how long has it, how, I mean, how long has the sport been around? I think world championships have now been going for 20 years. Wow. Um, but freediving has been around since the beginning of time. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. you go to the Japanese to, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Right. So you just competed at, in Belgrade at the World Championships, right? Yes, but it I did. it didn't exactly go the way you wanted it to? No. And, <clears throat> you know, I think that's in part me being very hard on myself. It was my first World Championships. You know, I think I surprised some people. I think I did better than, than a lot of people would have expected for someone who had been doing the sport for 18 months. How, how many do, are the World Championships every four years or every two years or something? Or? Every two. Mm-hmm. Every two. So... I wanted my goal was to make two two finals. I was competing in the no fins and the dynamic, which is with the monofin. And then I missed out on the final in the no fins on a technicality, um, which was just bad luck. At the end of the day, um, four of us equaled distance for the final spot uh-huh. in the final, and only three could get in. So how how many people do they take for the final? It takes 16. 16. And do they do it? Is it in the same day? You, you do a preliminary no. and the, uh, it's a no. follow, the following it's a, day? Yeah. It's, so they do the three events on three days and then there's a rest day and then the three events in the final. I see. So the first three days are preliminary heats. Yep. Okay. And then when you say you qualify for the final, does everybody get, like, are there people going at the same time yep. or you go individually? Eight at a time. Oh, eight at a time. So eight it's just time. like a swim meet. Yeah. So, and that's, and, and basically I got equal equal 14th, which, you know, I was just unlucky basically Mm -hmm. um, to make the no fins final. So I was a bit disappointed with that. That was something I was really wanting to do. And a part of that was strategic because a lot of guys were blacking out on that first day. And so everyone had told me to swim (laughs) conservatively. It just sounds funny. Like, oh, guys are blacking out. You know, like what other sport are you? You know, I had heard that a a third of the guys in that first heat had blacked out. Uh-huh. And this was my first world championships. I didn't know what to expect. And so a few people had said tank, swim conservatively. Right. And I was in and the how top many eight people, for most of the like day. How many, how many people are vying for that top 16? 140. Oh, wow. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. And, and one- Were you swimming for Australia or for the Australia, United States? For Australia, mm-hmm. yeah. And I swam a 155, which for me is a very conservative swim. I, I could swim 155, you know, at two in the morning mm-hmm. after a night out. Um that's a Serbian expression, by the way. I'd never heard that before. <laughs> Serbia. Yes, I can do 155 at yeah, 2 in the morning. <laughs> it's like, really? Why? Why would you do that? Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I, was, I missed out on that final. 
but you know, it was a learning lesson at the end of the day. If I'd done 160, I would have been in the final. So, mm-hmm. um, the, I mean, the difference between 17th place and 7th place in no fins was 11 meters. Mm-hmm. It was nothing. It was a really tight field. And then in the dynamic final. The, the winner, how far did he go? In the heat, he did 178, I think, in the prelim. Mm-hmm. And then in the in the final, he's the world champion. He did 208. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I was gunning to do about 175, somewhere around there. Um, 208, the 200, 208 meters underwater with no fins. No fins, yeah. Right? And explain the, the wetsuit thing because it would seem to me, I was watching the videos, what is the explanation for wearing a wetsuit? The wetsuit does two things. One is, you, you know, you got to remember with, you're not swimming very fast. I mean, we're doing mm-hmm. a meter a second, somewhere around there. Um, and your heart rate drops, so you actually get cold. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what you want to do is you want to maintain your core body temperature uh, by wearing a wetsuit so that you're not expending more oxygen in order to keep your body warm. Right. You, know, you don't want to shiver or anything But you've got to be like kind of coming to the surface. Like it's got to be lifting you to the surface a little bit, is it not? It's more buoyant, but we wear a neck weight to counteract oh, the buoyancy. Oh, you do? Okay, I didn't yeah. know that. I mean, we wear, we wear the neck weight to counteract mainly the buoyancy in our lungs. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wear 12, 13 pounds around my neck. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that I stay, you know, that's how I get that hydrodynamic. Right. By keeping my, my chest down with right, the, right, with the right. lead. Um, in the pool, that is. So, yeah, and then it's um, it's about hydrodynamics. I mean, you you know, I, I have uh, two wetsuits. I have my comp wetsuit and I have one that's tattered. I mean, it's filled with holes. And um, right. and the difference... Oh, it's just that, that's an aquasphere. Yeah, yeah the um, aquasphere, aquasphere. So that's that's like a triathlon competition wetsuit, exactly. right? That's yeah, what yeah, I use, yeah. yeah. Okay. I, and aquasphere, mm-hmm. I love those suits. I think they're fantastic. Um, the difference in, in either having no suit or having what I call a drag suit because it's just got tons of holes in it. Yeah. And wearing my comp suit, which is exactly the same suit, um, is five seconds per 50 yards. Yeah, I'm not surprised by that. Yeah. I mean, it's so much more uh, hydrodynamic yeah. versus you know the texture of your skin or exactly. other kind of whatever you would wear that would create that kind of friction that's going to slow you down. Yeah. And then in the dynamic, I made the dynamic final. I did 209 meters in the prelim. Mm-hmm. Um, again, was a conservative swim. I just... The idea is you want to save it for the big day. Right. Um, and then I got a chest infection um, after that and I did I did a silly thing. I did 230 meters in the dynamic final, which was 12 meters beyond my own national record. And mm-hmm. I blacked out, blacked as, I, out. as I came up to the surface. Yeah. So, so, yeah, I would have ideally would have liked to have done 220. Um, mm-hmm. I had put a marker down on the bottom of the pool at 220 and then two minutes before I had to pull it out. Um, so I didn't realize when I'd hit two, 220 and I, they, they had a halfway mark with 225. So 225, I started to come mm-hmm. up and, and that's when I blacked out. <clears throat> How long does it take you to recover after an effort? I mean, can you come back later that day or the next day or is it a couple days or what do you experience in the aftermath of something like that in the hours that follow? Um, in the aftermath of a blackout or just a swim? Or just a, a hard a effort, swim. a swim. Yeah, you're at the World Championships, you've right. done your prelim, you know, you've swum conservatively, but I'm yeah. still, would imagine it takes a lot out of you. I mean, are you, do you really need that extra day or two to recover? I mean, could you come back in the afternoon and do it again? I mean, how quickly does the body 
bounce back from something like that? I mean, ideally you want to, I, I like 24 hours, um, but uh, say in the US nationals, you have two disciplines in one day. So you'll have the static breath hold in the morning and then you could be up two hours again after that and you'll have to do the no fins dynamic. Mm-hmm. The, the, yeah, the no fins dynamic. So, you know, if you're doing a seven minute breath hold in the morning and then having to back it up with a, you know, 150, 180 meter swim or whatever it is, then that's, you know, that's hard on the body. And I- I mean, is it causing like micro tears in your lung tissue or things like that that you have to- No, no, it's just, it's just that, it's just taxing the nervous system and Mm -hmm. and your your kidneys and and whatnot and just, you know, that blood toxicity. And yeah, most people will, you know, tend to try and be a little bit conservative in one of the events. Mm -hmm. Um, I haven't competed in statics yet just because I've been focusing on dynamics. and then, you know, by the next day, I'm totally fine. And I do a lot of drills in training where I'll do a really big swim and I'll follow it up five minutes later with another big swim and another mm-hmm. big swim mm-hmm. just to kind of get used to that, that, you know, trying to emulate right. game day. Right, right, right. All right. So, so the world championships were, was that this summer? That was, was in July in, or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. July? Late June, early July mm-hmm. in Serbia. So what's going on now? Like what's the next thing? Well, there'll be a, I'm trying to see if I can get to a competition in Sydney at the end of the year. Um, I would like to have a crack at the No Fins national record, which is 175. Um, so that's that's kind of like my next goal. And then it's really looking to the US nationals in April next year and, you know, vying for a, a spot on the, 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 the Australia team for the, the depth um, team world championships. Right. I mean, do you have to go back to Australia and compete there to make their team or No, qualify, I can, I can, or can do, do it anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... <clears throat> And, and it's just about my ranking and, you know, I fortunately have the the number one ranking at the moment, so I automatically qualify. Right. Um, but, yeah, I, I should really just harp on the safety aspects of the sport. Um, you know, it's it's paramount that if you're interested in freediving that you do a freediving course, I think, and that you surround yourself with other freedivers and join a club. Um, in the U.S., there, you know, is there like a, a main website people could go to if they're interested in learning more about this, like a federation website or something? Yeah, there's uh, Ada, which is A I for Indigo, D A for Alpha, so mm-hmm. Alpha Indigo Delta Alpha. I say this because nobody <laughs> Are you understands. In the military, nobody yeah. understands my Australian <laughs> accent. A I D A. Yeah, thank you. If I spell my name, people think I'm right. saying T I N C. Tank. Yeah. Tink. <laughs> Tink. Yeah. yeah. Um, I love the fact that your name is Tank. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, no. And that you do this. I mean, yeah. you can't script this stuff. No, yeah. Right? It's, it was a terrible upbringing, I'll tell you what. Is that, that's your God-given name? Yeah, though, yeah. It, was, it was rough. Uh-huh. But, you know, if... Or you weren't playing rugby. Yeah. W- yeah. Was there an expectation that that was the direction you were going to go? <laughs> Most people assume I'm a lot bigger than I am when they <laughs> yeah. hear about me. And then uh-huh. they're, they're bitterly disappointed when they see that I'm this <laughs> tiny, diminutive figure. Um, You're the Australian Seth Myers. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can. Uh, I would say you can either find me on Facebook, and I will give you any information you want. Um, and that's you can find my name, or there'll be a link on the on your podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, or the, you can go to Southern California Freedivers, and we have a group there on Facebook. Um, if you're in the US, or just you know, you just go into Facebook and type in Freedivers or Google Freediving Clubs and you know, get along, meet the guys, do an induction, get some safety work done, understand everything about the sport that happens physiologically and, and what you need to do safety-wise before you, 
you know, go out there and do something silly. And, and unfortunately, people do silly stuff. You know, they'll mm-hmm. see us do stuff in the pool and then they'll go, oh, I can do this. And, right. you know, they'll, they'll start doing a lot stuff. Of brav- I would imagine there's a lot of bravado and I can hold exactly. my breath longer than you and it's exactly. easy to get into trouble. And I mean, does, does uh, one last like kind of technical question, does VO2 max have anything to do with it? Is that pertinent at all? Like if you, oh, I have huge VO2 max, that may mean you have some kind of, huge endurance engine or capacity or, or the capacity to push yourself really hard. But I'm, I'm wondering whether that is even relevant at all. I don't think it is. I was a cyclist growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you were a mountain biker, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, I, you know, I, I kind of competed at a state and national level. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was six days a week on the bike. And I, you know, I, I think, you know, cyclists and rowers probably have the two biggest VO2s mm-hmm. out of all the cross-country sports. Cross-country skiers Yeah, cross-country too. skiers, yeah. Um, and cardio is... is is disadvantageous to freediving. Interesting. Uh, so I quit all cardio. I've, I haven't done cardio in a year. Wow. Um, which kind of makes me a bit edgy. Um, but And that's just because I've had competition after competition after competition. And, and, you know, the good guys, they don't do that. They do cardio nine months a year and they want to peak at a certain time, usually the world championships or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I'm kind of learning so much. Why is that like sort of, you know, why, why is doing cardio work? Like, why would it not be a disadvantage to get out on your bike a couple of days a week and like, you know, build the heart and the lungs that way a little bit? Um, it seems counterintuitive and, and it certainly doesn't completely make sense to me. But the, the idea is, is that you become more efficient at burning oxygen mm-hmm. because you have to replenish it quicker. Um, and it increases your metabolic rate. Mm. So while most people want to do that, they want to burn more calories throughout the day by building muscle and doing cardio. Freedivers want the exact opposite of that. Right. So your training camp would be to <laughs> to take an extreme example. Rather than going and, you know, going out on your bike all day, you should probably you'd be better off flying to India and going and sitting in a cave in the Himalayas with a with a monk and yeah, pretty much. working on your breathing. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I on a diet dietary wise, I eat three meals a day and that's it. I never snack in between. Um, and I don't eat for six hours before an event because I want my stomach to be empty. I don't want it to be burning anything. Because mm-hmm. that requires energy. Yeah, exactly. So and you're talking about just the tiniest amounts of, of, of energy expenditure become mission critical. Yeah, because you know you are swimming for three and a half plus minutes. Um, so you're doing an aerobic activity anaerobically. Right. So there's that, you know, the, the juxtaposition. Ten- the tension there. between those two things. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And then you have the lactic acid build up and, you mm-hmm. know, it's, you know, just imagine doing squats, but holding your breath. Holding your breath, doing it. Yeah. Right, exactly. It's amazing, man. It's fascinating. Very, very, very cool. It's a fun sport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how, when you go down to the plunge, how many people show up to train with you? Uh, it depends. It could be usually it'd be up to like six. Mm-hmm. up to six guys mm-hmm. a couple of guys from the US team we have a, a, an Italian is that an everyday thing or a couple of times a week well no a couple of times a week I mean I train I tend to be in the pool four maybe four five sessions a week mm-hmm. um, most of the other guys probably a little bit less yeah um, and I mean most of that stuff I'm doing is stuff that that you know surface work or you know stuff not on a breath hold. Uh-huh. Um, is this something you can continue to get better at as you age? Is there like what is it? I mean, are there guys in their forties doing this yeah, or like yeah, you continue yeah. to improve? The the, the <clears throat> female world champion is fifty. Yeah, yeah, because your heart I'm not, rate. Yeah, I'm not surprised actually. Yeah, because yeah. metabolically you slow down as you get mm-hmm, older. Right. So it's yeah. If you if you have a good base and you have good technique and you're used to training well and you know I think 
I think this sport will absolutely blow up in the next five years as you get a lot of ex-swimmers coming over. Mm-hmm. And that's what's starting to happen now. I mean, you get these Olympic swimmers and they're, they're going to blow us out of the water. Right. Like, well, just efficiency-wise, they can put a monofin on and swim underwater. You know, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't have any kind of energy impact on them exactly. because they're so accustomed to that and they're so strong at doing that. And they've been doing it for so many years that, you know, by the time they hit 100 meters, it's like they haven't even started. Yeah, the... The hardest challenge with swimmers is getting them to slow down. Yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, you yeah. try to get it's it. Like, well, you try to get let's a pick it up. Like if yeah. we're going to go 220 yeah. meters, let's get it yeah. done with already. Try and get a breaststroker to do 50 meters in 50 seconds. <laughs> He's just like, man, what are we doing? You know? <laughs> yeah, because in in the in the no fins technique, we separate the arm and the leg stroke, and mm. so it's an arm stroke, and then it's a glide, and then it's a leg stroke, and then it's a glide. And then it's an oh, arm stroke, wait. and then it's a glide. So, oh, so you're you're so yeah. We didn't even get into that. No. So when you're when you're when you're not using the fin, yeah, you're still underwater, but you're doing kind of an underwater breaststroke. Yeah. I see. I it, got it's you. It's the same. It's a modified stroke that a breaststroker would do off the push off the wall. Uh huh. It's pretty much that. You see them do that big push off the wall, right? And then they take one stroke and they they pull their arms, right, 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 and they get that glide. Uh huh. Um, a lot of breaststrokers will throw in a dolphin kick as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they're not supposed to, but yeah. a lot of them get you yeah. can kind of get away with a little bit of that. Yeah, we don't we don't tend to do that, but I'll show you some videos of what it looks like. You mm-hmm. get a, get an idea of it. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's 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 a whole nother kettle of fish. That one because you're spending so much time in the glide position. I mean, I cover twenty five yards in two strokes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's two kicks and two two arm two balls, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's that's got to have a more anaerobic component to it than just being in the dolphin streamlined dolphin kick with the fin. Yeah, yeah. You're using your arms. You're using more muscles. Exactly. Yeah, and and you're. I find it harder to hold technique as the swim goes on because my arms with breaststroke it's much more finicky. You don't have the you don't have a monofin to have that margin of error, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, when your technique goes in dolphin, dolphin kick, you can just kick more with your quads, and you right. still get that. But if your arm strokes a little bit off, and your your arm slips through the water, and you're not getting the pull that yeah. you need, you're yeah. looking. You know, that's a that's a massive screw up. Exactly. And just right. imagine being in a tremendous <clears throat> amount of pain. Your chest is heaving. You're starting to lose your vision. Your mental capacity is dropping. All of a sudden, your arm pull is nothing like. At least for me, it's not. I mean. You know, my first 50 I'll do in two, two and a half strokes. Um, by the time I'm at 150, I'm at three and a half, four strokes. Mm-hmm. And then from 160, I'm going into like four, five strokes, uh, you know, because everything's just – and that's right. that's just areas that I need to work in. You know, I'm not – I'm not as strong just, at the I'm end. getting uncomfortable just hearing about it. Like I'm starting to get like <laughs> <Yeah>. panicked. <laughs> well, I'll show you some videos. Of what <laughs> yeah, I want to see yeah. it. All right, cool, man. Well, we we got to wrap it up, dude. I've taken up enough of your time, but um, this is fascinating. I learned a lot. Like I, yeah, I, like I said, I mean, you know, I didn't really didn't know that much about it, and um, there's so much more to it than I would have imagined. And uh, it's really cool, man. It would be cool to see the sport, you know, blow up a little bit more and yeah, more people get into it. So, if people want to find out more about it, they can go. What is it? A I D. What was it? A I D. Ada will have more information. A I D A dot com or uh, it could be. I would just Google it. Google it, or Ada just go just go into Google and yeah. search free diving or whatever yeah. in your area if you want to learn more. Or and just I'm click sure on one of the links. Tons of videos yeah. on YouTube, right? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. And if people want to 
um, kind of follow you and find out more about what you're doing, uh, you're at Tanksade yeah. on Twitter, T-A-N-C-S-A-D-E. Yep. And you're on Facebook and all Same that. Same name. Right? Yeah, exactly. And of course, there's the Dysfunctional Bachelor. Oh, we got to wow. talk about that. Oh, you've delved, <laughs> you've delved deep, haven't you, mate? Hey, I do. Oh, it doesn't take much research to find that. All I had to do is go to your Facebook page and right, see your true. post, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the dysfunctional bachelor. I guess it's self-explanatory, right? Yeah. But that's just your blog. Yeah, it's tongue right? in cheek. It's kind of having a little bit of a little bit of fun. Right, right, right. And uh, and your film production company, Five Five Island Films. Five, Five Island Films. Yeah, it's a little indie film production company that we set up a few years ago, um, and we just kind of make little projects for art, really, and mm-hmm. you know have a creative vision and try to tell stories that we want to tell. That it's not necessarily generated by you know, the dollars. Right. Um, and so in addition to being an actor, you're a writer and director. And yes, you did I that am. project with Terrence Stamp. Yes, I yes. did. That's amazing. That yeah, my very first film. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. He's phenomenal. He's, uh-huh. a, he's a great talent and it was really nice to have someone that level of experience around. Cool. So are you going to be writing and directing a feature? I'm working on a feature right now. Um, it's a drama. It's set in a, a small town in northern New England. Um and uh, yeah, I've been talking to some production companies about that and we're just, you know, going through the motions. Right, cool. All right, man. Well, Thank stay you. in touch, man. I want to follow your journey. So um, Tank uh, needs your support. You've got great support from some sponsors. I know you're sponsored by like Two Times You, Aquasphere, Equinox, I think is helping you out yeah, too. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But uh, let's give this guy a shout out and help him out. And um, if you go to... The uh, blog page on my website, I'm going to put up a few videos so you can check out what he's doing and uh, and uh, get more interested in what's up, right? Absolutely. All Thank right, you man. so much, mate. Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for the time. It's been fascinating. All right, dude. Peace. Plants. Plants.